Well, this morning we start a sermon series, as I said, Belong. And my assertion is that all of us want to belong. You might be an introvert, not really like to belong with so many people. You might be an extrovert. You might be from another culture that places different values on relationships. You might have had a troubled past where you've been wounded by some people. No matter your upbringing, no matter your family, that God built it in you, I would assert, to want to belong somewhere to somebody with something. God created us that way, like it or not. He created us for relationships, relationships with one another and relationship, most importantly, with Him. We want to belong. And so my sermon series is four parts, and so we start this morning with this idea of Jesus loving me. But before we get there, let me take you forward a few weeks, because where our goal is, is what I would call obedience-based discipleship. That because we realize how Jesus loves us, we respond in love to Him, not out of a mechanical, legalistic way. And so in order for us to get there in the fourth sermon of this series, three weeks from now, to obeying Jesus, I want to start and build this logical case for us. So today's sermon is on Jesus' love for me. And we're going to look at just one story from Jesus' life and see how he loved two very different people in the exact same household at the exact same time. And hopefully that'll paint a picture for any of you, whether you're this person or that person or somewhere in between, that Jesus loves you. Next week, we're going to be talking about loving Jesus, our response to loving Jesus, that you can't separate the love and obedience. And because he loves me, I am compelled to respond by the way he made me to love him. Two weeks from now, our third sermon, we'll talk about loving others and that we belong to love others. And we'll highlight some ways that we do this and demonstrate our love to one another. And you all have experienced them, hopefully for the good, but sometimes for the bad. And your hearts have been broken when folks haven't loved you well or they've done much worse. And finally, three weeks from now in our fourth sermon, we're going to talk about obeying Jesus. So when we start with God's love, I bring us a quote by Pastor John Orton. And he talks about a legalistic kind of Christianity. He says, It insists principally on moral duties without enforcing them warmly and affectionately by evangelical motives. External duty without internal love as a motive. Keep that praise in mind. External duty without internal love as a motive. External conformity or performance-based acceptance generates a church family that looks good but is not motivated by true love and worship of Jesus. Enough badgering from the pulpit will manipulate many Christians uh, into a man-made mold, but eventually those same Christians become disillusioned and hurt by man-centered leadership tactics. The only biblical, viable, sustainable motivation for doing anything as a Christian is pure Love for Jesus. Being pushed into a set of standards, a weekly structure, or an outward appearance always leads to resentment of those that are pushed or manipulated. That Christianity eventually falls apart, says Orton. 
but being led by the Spirit and motivated by love will produce a pure-hearted, sustainable, joyful, non-oppressive Christian walk. That's what we want, isn't it? We want to be so in love with Jesus that we can't help but love other people. And that even if we don't like them, even if they get on our nerves sometimes, something about us just wants to go out and love them and try to be understanding of them and give them grace like we've received grace and give them love like we've received love. To know God's love so personally, so intimately that we cannot help to let Jesus flow through us. So I didn't tell you already, but maybe you've already opened your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. So I'll keep talking and tell you a little background while you're on your way there. There are parallel passages to this in each of the Gospels. In Matthew, and in Mark, and in John. Now, the ones in Matthew and Mark are absolutely identical. Matthew used Mark as a source. That's well known from uh, critical scholarship of the Bible. John's is slightly different. And you might say, okay, there are similarities and differences between these accounts. Are they three separate accounts, three separate people doing the three separate things? Or is it one account told at different times by the gospel writers? The best understanding, and frankly, the most conservative biblical theologians or scholars would say that it is that. It's one story. But when you look at the reason why Luke, as a writer, included it here rather than why John included it where it happened later, is that Luke was writing with a purpose. And his gospel is mostly chronological. But the purpose, you see, if you look at Luke chapter 7 here, is to answer the question, who is this Jesus? And so he answers the question in verses 1 through 10 that Jesus is a healer. He healed in the case of the centurion's daughter. And then, verses 11 through 17 of Luke 7, he answered that Jesus has power over death. He raised the dead. Verses 18 through 35 of Luke chapter 7, that he is the coming one, the one who has prophesied, the Messiah. And then the end of Luke chapter 7, the verses we'll deal with here, that he has even the power to forgive sins. So this story is included here in the Gospel of Luke to build this Christology, that's a fancy word for the study of Christ, of who Jesus is as Luke is presenting it to his readers so that when they say it, they say logically, Jesus does this, he does this, he does this, and he even does this. Wow. So that's how we end up where we're at. So if you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word, would you stand as we read Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, 
If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men, Jesus spoke, owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said, verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Oh, you did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. God, our Father, so many of us at Southview are familiar with this passage of Scripture because we portray it right on this stage in our Easter drama. So we pray, Father, that you help us to see the depth of meaning here. That we wouldn't ignore or we wouldn't make a caricature or think of the actors that play these roles in front of us. But that we would seek to see the truth that your Holy Spirit would reveal to us about love for you and your love for us. So, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Your scripture memory verse of the month connects love and obedience for us. And that scripture memory verse of the month you've heard me recite many times and you may know it. It's John 14, 21. And it's appearing there on the screen now. So if you'll say it with me, reference, verse, reference. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. John 14, 21. Jesus speaking to his disciples at the Last Supper, illustrating love for him and obedience and how love and obedience are tied together. But we go back to this first part of that. That we respond in obedience to Jesus because He first loved us. And that's where we're at today. The first point on your outline, a blank that you have to fill in, is that sharing a meal shows Jesus' love. Sharing a meal shows Jesus' love. That's in verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. So uh, we know, because it says later it's Simon the Pharisee, not Simon as in uh, Simon that became Peter, but a different Simon, common name in that day and time. And Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus to his house to have dinner. 
Now, this was at the Sabbath day, and Simon, as a Pharisee, uh, must have had a big enough house he can invite people to. In many cases, a house like that would have a central courtyard, and there's a doorway open to the street. And those that were the invited guests would recline at a very low table and lean over on one side with their feet sticking out behind them and eat with their right hand. They lean on their left side with a pillow under them, and their feet are going out behind them. The interesting thing about their custom in that day and time, and we can't portray this when we show the Last Supper scene. It's not the Last excuse me, we do the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. But we can't portray this because we don't have space, and it's not, this scene isn't quite all in our Easter pageant is that when in that day and time such a meal was being had, townspeople, common people, uninvited people could wander in your house and see what was going on. Who did you have for dinner? I don't know about you, but if I'm sitting in my house having dinner with friends and somebody else just walks in and kind of walks around the table and looks at what's going on, I would think that's a little bit awkward. But that was their culture. So it wouldn't have been unexpected that a lady who was not invited to the dinner party, if you will, would come in. There might have been dozens of other people kind of wandering around. I don't think they got anything to eat. I didn't see anything in that that, you know, oh, here, we'll give you something to eat too. Here, have some of mine. It's just like they could wander around, listen to the conversation. But they're at Simon the Pharisee's house. Other than that background for you, I want to point out that sharing a meal shows Jesus' love. Jesus, Scripture tells us, knew what was in a man. Jesus knew what was in Simon. Jesus knew Simon's heart. Jesus knew his self-righteousness and his sinfulness, even though on the outside he looked like he had it all together with his man-made religion. But Jesus chose to show love to Simon by accepting his invitation. When I was a pastor in college, a little church, Calvary Baptist Church, Stanford, Texas, it was about as big as this section right here in our church. And a high attendance Sunday, we would have like 68 or 72 people in church, right? But they paid me $75 a week to be the youth director of the church. But I got all kinds of amazing experience because I had a pastor who, eh, his theology and his practice was small, so I did lots of other things. But we had some sweet little old ladies in our church, and I'll call them sweet little old ladies because they were sweet, they were little, and they were old. They were known as faith, hope, and love because they always sat together on the same pew, the seventh pew back. I don't know if they counted, but that was their pew, and they left Afghans there so that if they got cold because it was a drafty old church, they could cover themselves with the Afghans. And so that's how you knew not to sit there. You walk down the pew and, oh, whose Afghans are those? I guess I must not supposed to sit here, you know. Well, faith, hope, and love. Those ladies demonstrated their love by inviting me, the single college guy, over for lunch on, oh, plenty of Sundays. Maybe not every Sunday. Some Sundays I'd have to go, you know, somewhere else on my own. But one of those ladies would host lunch for the other ladies, and they'd invite the young preacher boy over. And so often they would cook chicken. And fried chicken, they called it the Baptist bird. If you're going to be a Baptist preacher, you got to be able to eat the Baptist bird. And they'd have me over for lunch. And we'd tell stories and we'd laugh. I heard about their husbands that had all passed. And I heard about their children and their grandchildren. We'd cry together and pray together. And it was a wonderful time. Sharing a meal together should be a time where you demonstrate love for one another and a relationship for one another. 
But in this case, it would seem that Simon the Pharisee maybe had not the best motives. Not because he expected the sinful woman to come in, but because how his heart is revealed when she does. Your question there, ask of you, how has Jesus pursued me? How has Jesus pursued me? Because my assertion is that Jesus could have gone anywhere else for lunch that day. He didn't have to go to Simon's house. He didn't have to have that, but he knew something else was going on. And not only was he going to pursue the sinful woman, but he was going to pursue the heart of Simon, the self-righteous, sinful Pharisee. What circumstances, what people has he put in your life to get your attention? What thoughts or Bible verses come in your mind to demonstrate to you that he's pursuing you? Songs you hear, words you hear that show that Jesus is pursuing you. Your second point on your outline is allowing sacrifice shows Jesus' love. Allowing sacrifice shows Jesus' love. Look at verse 37 and 38. When a woman who had lived a sinful life. Now, in John chapter 12, she's identified as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And maybe she had lived not the best life. It wasn't based on her vocation necessarily, but based on her moral choices. That people knew that she was sinful, that she had fallen, that she was an immoral type. But when she, who lived in that town, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, what's it say there? She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. What Mary does is quite amazing. This jar of perfume that she breaks that is uh, said in Mark and John to be cost 300 denarii. A denarii was one day's wages. So this is almost a year's wages, right? 300 denarii, 10 months worth of wages that she spilled. And Jesus and her were chastised for this in the other Gospels. But here we stay with the story of her sacrifice. Jesus could have said, no, you can't do that. Jesus said, no, this isn't dignified for you to do this. But he was allowing her to sacrifice. And he showed her love by allowing her sacrifice. Your question there asks, how has Jesus honored me? Well, that's an odd question to ask, maybe, isn't it? But I think if you think about it, you can say, yeah, Jesus has honored me. Jesus has shown love for me. Jesus has accepted me. Jesus has demonstrated grace for me. And I can name it this way and this way and this way and this way. There's all these ways that if I were to sit and talk with somebody over a meal, because Pastor Aaron says we should show our love for people that way, and we know it's true, that we would see Jesus' love for us. He called you. He saved you. He forgave you. He included you. He sanctified you. He's guiding you. He's carried you. And on and on and on. He's honored you because He loves you. Let's move on in our passage of Scripture to verse 39 through 43. And that blanks there say that correcting error shows Jesus' love. Sometimes when we correct someone's error, we don't do it in a loving manner. Um, We may love them but we forget our tone or our attitude in the way we do it. But 
I want to say here, we can't read into it Jesus' tone, but look at what happens. When the Pharisee who had invited him in, verse 39, saw this, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. We can all hear Larry Zimmerman saying that, right? I should have got Larry to come up here and deliver his line. He'd do it better than me. What he's saying is, if he really was God's son or really had some power, he'd know that this isn't the right kind of lady to be touching you, bro. And that to touch his feet, to use her hair, to use her tears, and then this extravagant gift of the alabaster jar, uh, you know, 10 months wages worth of perfume, whoa, way over the top, way out of line is what Simon, the self-righteous, stiff-shirted Pharisee is saying. But Jesus doesn't miss a beat. Verse 40, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he tells him a parable. Two people owe money. One owes 50 denarii, so almost two months' wages. One owes 500 denarii, a year and a half's worth of wages. And the guy that they owed it to forgive them both. Now, which one of them do you suppose loved him more? Now, it's interesting that in the Hebrew or Aramaic that Jesus was speaking in, there is, use that term, loved him more, because there is not a term for gratitude or thankfulness. So, love him more means they, they, the same sort of thing. Which one of them would thank him more? Which one of them would respond with more respect because of the grace that had been given them? Simon has to say in verse 43, I suppose the one with the bigger debt canceled. It's all about grace, you see. Jesus' love for us. That no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, He loves us. But look at Jesus' love here. He didn't just get in Simon's face. He wasn't mean to him. He wasn't condescending to him as far as we can tell. There was no tone or attitude here. But Jesus kindly tells him a story to illustrate the reason I'm accepting this woman's extravagant gift and allowing her to wash my feet with her tears and her perfume and her hair is because she's been forgiven a lot. Simon, I wouldn't expect you to feel the same way about me because you don't think you've been forgiven much at all if even you want a relationship with me. So Jesus is correcting the error of Simon and he's showing him love. Your question there asks, how has Jesus been gracious to me? Think about God's grace for you, that you've been forgiven, that you've been guided, that you've been loved. He's been gracious to you again and again and again and again, more than you can count, more than you can imagine, if you would be honest about your sins and your shortcomings. Let's go on in our passage of Scripture. Your fourth point there is that explaining Himself shows Jesus' love. Jesus then has to explain himself. He explains himself to Simon, but the woman's still there. Mary's still there. You see, when I came into your house, you didn't give me any water for my feet. That was customary. That she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but again, customary, but she did. So I hadn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she poured perfume on my feet. What does Jesus say there? Verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. Jesus 
because he loves Simon. He wants him to get it. Jesus, because he loves the woman and he wants to honor her, explains the analogy to Simon and kindly points out Simon's uh, less than hospitable manner when he received him. That he didn't show him basic affection or basic honor or hospitality by washing his feet or having a servant do it. By giving him a kiss of greeting and by anointing him with oil. That Simon skipped all those things in relation to Jesus for some reason. But the woman, Mary, did not. I've got to ask us, in the face of sin, that Jesus loves us patiently and kindly How has he been patient with me? He told Simon the story. It's like Simon didn't get it or didn't want to accept it. It must have been on his face. So Jesus goes on to explain it to Simon. How many times has Jesus told you something and you didn't get it and he had to show you again? He had to explain it to you again. He had to take you back to Scripture again. And that his patience with you demonstrated his love for you. That again and again and again you've sinned. Again and again and again you failed. And you needed grace. You needed love. You needed forgiveness. And he did it again and again and again. Because he loves you. you got to love the end of the story. Verse 48, And Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your fifth point there is that forgiving sins Forgiving sins shows Jesus' love. All these things show Jesus' love, but ultimately here, not only is she honored, not only is Jesus being patient, explaining things to Simon the Pharisee and Mary the sinful woman, but he's giving forgiveness. And forgiveness, among all things, shows his love because I've sinned against him. I'm the reason he had to die on the cross, yet he forgives me. Woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your question on your outline is, how has Jesus freed me? How has Jesus freed me? That I can go in peace. That I have been saved. That I have been forgiven. That I've been set free from the penalty of my sin. That I've been set free from the bondage of my habits. And those things that get me down. How has He freed me? That I can go in peace. As one loved and forgiven. You have a few conclusions on the bottom of your outline there. The first one is that one person was sinful, but self-righteous. Simon the Pharisee, by all worldly appearances, had it together. He had the external religion. He looked like he was all right. But his actions toward Jesus demonstrate a heart that was caught up in man-made, self-righteous religion. Maybe it was that he couldn't help himself. Maybe it was that it was all he knew. Maybe that his mom and dad had this life track set out for him. You're going to go to this school and learn from these people. And so we don't need to get all judgmental and shake our fingers at Simon because some of us may be Simon. It was the world he lived in. 
It was all he could identify with. Yet, Jesus loved him. In spite of himself or because of himself, Jesus loved him. He was sinful of the self-righteous kind. Your next point says that one person was sinful but broken. Mary, the sinful woman. She was not concerned with what others would think. She knew she was breaking cultural norms. She knew she was breaking an alabaster jar worth a whole lot of money. But she didn't care. She was so broken because of either her sin or because she already knew the forgiveness that she had from Jesus for her sin or because of the love she had for Jesus in the way that he had loved others. She was so broken, she didn't care what anybody else think. But she was sinful. She doesn't argue the fact that she was sinful. Jesus doesn't argue the fact that she was sinful. By the way, all of us are sinful, right? And in Jesus, in response to his love, she found the freedom to exercise sacrificial, self-deprecating, amazing love that the Bible tells us will be repeated throughout generations. And I'm repeating it again even today to remind us what love is like. Here's your third point then. Jesus loved them both. Jesus loved them both. The self-righteous, got-it-all-together person and the broken, life-is-a-mess person. Jesus loved them on either extreme. Which one are you this morning? You look like you got it all together, but it's just your Sunday face. I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? But you know your life is a mess and you've got habits and you've got sin and you're afraid anybody's going to find out in this congregation who will love me and understand me and help me overcome these things with accountability and encouragement and support. Maybe you're on the other side, and you're sitting here in church this morning, and you're going, I don't even know why I'm here. I can't believe all these people got their lives together. They don't. And my life is a mess, and why would they love me? And how could the things the pastor's talking about even apply to me? It does. God does love you. No matter what, no matter where, no matter how, He loves you. And maybe your life is somewhere in the middle of that continuum between self-righteous and broken, but you're still a mess and you're still a sinner and you still need Jesus. Amen? That Jesus loves not just these two both, but Jesus loves all of us. That's your next point. Jesus loves you no matter what. I might need a bigger amen for that. No matter what. So your question is, how have I responded to Jesus' love? If He loves me no matter what, what have I done in response to that? Have I been all self-righteous? I've got it together wagging my finger at other people? Or am I broken? And am I humble? I don't care whatever the people think, just as long as Jesus knows I love Him because He loves me. And I'm sacrificing for him because he sacrificed for me. And I'm being undignified for him because he gave grace to me. Friends, Jesus loves you no matter what. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 3, prays this prayer. 
He says, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray out of His glorious riches that He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, the love of Jesus, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. Let's pray. God, our Father, we so thank you for your love for us, and we are humbled by it to consider that through Jesus, no matter what our sins, no matter what the world says of us, that there's nothing we could ever do to separate us from our love from you. So God, our Father, we thank you that we see the story of the self-righteous and the broken, and we know we're probably somewhere in there too, and that Jesus loved them graciously, patiently, and He forgave. So, Father, it's our prayer if there's anyone here today, no matter how they feel about their sin, that if they're willing to confess that Jesus is their Savior and Lord, and ask Him to forgive their sins, that they would become one of His followers today. And for those of us that are Christ followers, that if we've allowed something to come in the way of a right relationship with Jesus, we confess that today. We pray these things in Jesus' name.